Hello and welcome to Crime Theories Off the Record, a podcast series where I explain my interpretation of criminological theories behind the why, when, and where people misbehave. This is your host, Karen. Hello everyone. Today, I will talk about the theoretical arguments of left realism of the record. Some may argue that this is criminology as we know it. However, the early contributions by the new criminology and realist criminology were not created in a social and a political vacuum. Initially, they were part of the emergence of the new left in North America and Britain during the late 1960s and early 1970s. It held in its scope of criticism not only the issues discussed within traditional criminology, but also what has become known as the anti-psychiatry movement, prison support groups, campus sit-ins, and community action efforts. During the late 1960s and 1970s, higher education social science in Britain was expanded at an unprecedented level, and sociology, criminology, deviance offerings were developed not only in well-established universities, but also in other universities and expanding polytechnics. The new courses often were taught by individuals in or around the new radical criminology, to sociology students heavily imbued with the new left ideas and practice. Many of these scholars and their students remain in academia and are active critical criminologists. In addition to leading the attack on traditional positivism, which held sway between post-World War II and the late late 1960s, radical and realist criminologists have contributed to a long list of concepts that are now staples of criminological culture, whatever its political persuasion. This include a powerful critique of the mechanical determinism associated with biological explanations of crime, the social construction of statistics, emphasis on the endemic rather than the solely class-based nature of crime, and the largely invisible victimization of racist crime, domestic violence against women, and abuse of children. Several general social social and criminal justice policy implications flow from left realists, including striking a balance between the crimes of the powerful and the realities of street crime, creating a social justice agenda that emphasizes democratic-based reforms that could provide safe and affordable housing, fulfilling work, child care, universal health care, and adequate transportation. Left realists support minimal incarceration programs that would enhance the likelihood of released prisoners successfully re-entering society and democratize forms of social control such as proactive instead of reactive policing. But before I jump into this, I would like to remind everyone that I am not an expert in every aspect of my field, but I have researched the topic. Now, for some context. During the late 1990s, two events provided an opportunity to reevaluate the impact of the new criminology. The first was what all accounts describe at first glance as a historic shift in Britain's politics and the beginning of a new and different political philosophy. The second was the publication of the new criminology revisited. One year before, on May 1st, 1997, 44-year-old Tony Blair was elected with the vast majority as the youngest prime minister since 1812 to the most popular new government in British history, ending two decades of conservative rule. Once the lead singer for a student band called Ugly Rumors, Blair had a campaign for the new Labour Party and promised a national transition to a new Britain far different from its baller-hatted image of divisive classism. 
Central to his agenda was rhetoric supporting community, inclusiveness, and a reforming zeal. Once in office, Blair and his Labour Party quickly focused on the modernization of healthcare, the reduction of Britain's runaway welfare bill, human rights, globalization, poverty, the devolution of Scotland and Wales, and a more cooperative relationship with the European Union. Most of these items generally had been opposed by Thatcher and her successor, John Major. By late 1997 and early 1998, however, skeptics were questioning whether Blair and the New Labour were any less conservatives and hopeful in their efforts to solve social problems, such as crime, than their predecessors. Some critics argued that by the time Blair was in his third term, he was the greatest Tory since Thatcher, a criticism given greater credence post-9-11 because of his fondness and support for President George W. Bush in the Iraq war. After the 2005 London subway bombings by terrorists, the Blair government initiated anti-terror legislation, administrative policies, and practices strongly criticized as violations of human rights, invasions of privacy, illegal and unjust. Before these policies, Labour's approach to welfare reform was to cut support for unemployed single mothers and to submit the benefits for sick and not body-able people to means of testing. Blair called this decision a tough choice and dismissed the warnings of harm to the disadvantaged as scaremongering. To some critics, New Labour's approach to crime, while initially influenced by left realism, was soon equally as authoritarian, punitive, and conservative as that of the Tories. New policies, for example, included more private prisons, curfews for junk people, enhanced use of electronic monitoring, harassing beggars, zero tolerance, enhanced automatic sentence for persistent petty offenders. Of these policies, privatizing along with centralizing public service including health, education, and criminal justice agencies increasingly became Blair's touchstone when using what works was believed to be his guiding principle. That was replaced with an ideology of, quote, does it introduce competition, end quote, a perspective consistent with neoliberalism support for a government dominated by market forces, privatization, and consumerism. Of the record, an example of this is when he presided over the opening of eight new adult jails and three juvenile jails, all funded by private efforts. This approach permitted the London-based Center for Public Services to conclude that Britain was the most privatized criminal justice system in the world. Around the same time, Blair and his political supporters attempted to extend privatization, also known as contestability, and introduced by the Carter Report, to include probation services, an effort that was defeated perhaps temporarily in late 2005 and early 2006. By late 2005, probation had already mainly been transformed from its nearly 100-year-old social work ethos toward a punishment in the community. Ideology that blurred the time, honored distinction between community and custodial penalties and the creation of seamless sentences, which contains elements of both. The effort to privatize probation followed an early national centralization development that brought England and Wales prison and probation services together under the National Offender Management System, NUMS, rubric, ostensibly presented and justified by Blair as a way to improve public service standards. It was arguably, in fact, a way to introduce more technological innovation 
into criminal justice, especially various forms of electronic monitoring, including GPS, real-time tracking, to name a few. The latter strategy of managing offenders was part of government concern about the high percentage of prisoner reentry or resettlement to society failures. It was argued that intense electronic monitoring and well-planned re-entry plans could reduce reoffending and the cost of traditional incarceration. England's incarcerated population continued to grow under new labor, as it had under the conservatives, and it remained the highest per capita prison population in Western Europe. Under Gordon Brown, a Labour Party member elected as Blair's successor on June 24, 2007, England and Wales prison's population remained high. New Labour's tough-on-crime policies often failed to attack the causes of crime, not unlike Clinton's and Bush's support for more police, longer sentences, and expansion of death penalty. Blair and the New Labour's soon replaced the Conservatives as the Law and Order Party. It is against these changes that we can examine the impact of the 1973 publication of the new criminology and its critical air apparent left-realism. In retrospect, the editors of and contributors to the new criminology revisited saw the 1973 publication as part of the 1970s wave of radicalism that continued with various degrees of impact into the 21st century. A close reading of this work indicates that most, if not all, of the significant points advanced in 1973 were reaffirmed. Crime and the processes of criminalization are embedded in the core structures of society, whether in class relations, patriarchal and or imperialist forms, or inherent authoritarianism. New criminology's sole and precise aim is to improve the human condition. Contemporary criminology has a utopian commitment. The new criminology was and still is not committed to the correction as supported by establishment criminology. Human behavior does not need corrected. The new criminology is wedded to a social change. Its adherents wish to do more than make professional contributions to human knowledge. The new criminology aims to deconstruct criminological theories to construct a social theory of crime and deviance. Much the ideology of the new criminology generally had not changed during the intervening years. The 1998 reaffirmation of its agenda could not disguise the fact that significant new theoretical developments had happened. Feminist perspective had become more developed and central to critical criminology, as had postmodernist thought. The Marxist heritage had not been so much abandoned as refined and redefined. Instead of maintaining its position as a mega-narrative, it became a source for a set of professional hypotheses or a frame of conceptual resources and or deposits. Off the record, let's take a moment to digest all of this information. Some of it might be very political, too political perhaps, but it may bring some understanding of how politics influence the criminal justice system, or even by the British, especially when it comes to urban professional police departments. Let's just keep that in mind. You might note some of the English influence in American law enforcement. Moving on, Ian Taylor's 1998 and Elliot Curry's 1998 analysis of the impact of the US and Britain's 1980s and 1990s unleashing of free market forces on the increase in property crime in each country and globally was illustrative or rework Mars's explanations of crime. Although acclaimed as a vindication of conservative social and economic policies, much evidence supports the proposition that it increased property crime, poverty, homelessness, inner-city drug abuse, and violent crime. In retrospect, some of the ideas developed in the new criminology revisited were forerunners of much that captured the imagination of today's cultural criminologists. Each of these scholars discussed some of the features 
pillars of late modernity and crime, and by doing so, they laid some of the theoretical groundwork that can now be appreciated as a bridge between new criminology and cultural criminology. For several years, interest in left realism grew considerably as one of the fields of inquiry under the broader category of critical criminology, even though some critics pronounced it dead. There were several reasons for this premature and incorrect pronouncement. One reason is the fact that before the 1980s, critical criminology focused primarily on corporate and white-collar crime and on the importance of understanding the impact class and race have on the administration of criminal justice agencies while neglecting left realism's call for attention to be directed directed to the crimes committed by the powerless as well as working class and female victimization. Ignoring left realism's position on this point gave some critics the impression that it had little to say worth hitting, whereas left realists agreed that these are essential topics that warrant attention. Nonetheless, they claim that it has been empirically demonstrated that failure to acknowledge and study the crimes of the powerless plays into the hands of conservative politicians who could manufacture ideological support for traditional right-wing and law-and-order policies. Because left realists argue that crimes of the powerless resulted primarily from inequalities inherent in the social structure, the crimes of the disenfranchised, in their opinion, must first be recognized before an egalitarian society based on social justice principles. For some time, this argument was ignored because it had less political appeal than focusing on crimes of the powerful and on race and gender issues, regardless of theoretical and empirical accuracy to the contrary. This preference to added the impression that left realism had a weak critical voice, but this view soon changed. By 2010, the bulk of the theoretical work addressed street crime, the Cronian means of policing, and violence against women in heterosexual relationships. In addition, left realists now conduct local crime victimization surveys, which include quantitative and qualitative questions that elicit data on harms generally considered irrelevant to the police, conservative politicians, and most middle and upper class members of the general public. These topics include male-to-female physical and sexual assaults in adult intimate relationships, sexual harassment of gays, lesbians, and transgender people, and people of color in public places, and corporate crime. Until recently, left realism was criticized because it gave little critical attention to how structural factors such as the shift from manufacturing to a service-based economy and what they call a neoconservative assault on social services have negatively impacted today's middle-class youth, or to how double-digit unemployment on both sides of the Atlantic home foreclosures, factory slowdowns and closings, and additional economic turmoil caused by the implementation of economic policies fostered by the University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman, the near elimination of the public sector, the regulation of corporations including hazardous Wall Street and banking practices, and skeletal social spending led to various forms of social exclusion, gender crime, gentrification, and a negative impact on middle-class adolescents. Questions about the vitality of left realism were also found in rich discussions of what some critics have called the public irrelevance and marginality of orthodox criminology, or what has been labeled with the moniker, so what criminology. This is no small matter for mainstream criminology, especially in the face of the fact that according to some sources, including a 2005 United States Government Accountability Office report 
crime is going down, and thus is perhaps contributed to making the criminological enterprise an endangered species. The significant contours of the debate were offered by the award-winning and internationally esteemed left realist Elliot Curry at the 2004 annual meeting of the American Society of Criminology. The author of Confronting Crime, 1985, one of the classic criminological works, Curry, in essence, said that conventional criminology had, despite its accumulated theoretical and empirical heft, distressing little impact on the course of public policy toward crime and criminal justice. It was not that criminology had nothing or little relevance to say about public policy. Instead, the problem was that it had become isolated from such debates because criminologists do a lousy job of educating the public about what they know about what to do about crime. Although Roger Matthews, one of the founders of left realism, agreed with Curie's assessment, he disagreed with his proposed solution. Rather than developing new strategies for criminologists to intervene in crime and criminal justice policy debates, Matthews 2009 suggested engaging in theoretical informed interventions employing an appropriate methodology. He offered a refashioned realist criminology that prioritized the role of theory around concepts such as class, the state, and structure. Using these ideas, he argued that coupled with the recognition that a method of analysis that stressed the meaning of crime instead of trends to victims and offenders is an essential component that will link theory to effective intervention. This approach Matthews proposed would create a left realist criminology that could stand in stark contrast to form of positivism and empiricism that are prevalent in conventional criminology. However, this approach can be criticized for committing the same mistake made by earlier left realists, which is gender blindness. Off the record, I know I have mentioned this before. Still, it is essential to note that early criminology mainly focus on male criminal behavior or deviance and rarely took women into account. However, to address this limitation and to strengthen some of left realism's former weaknesses, scholars offer a new left realism subcultural theory that placed gender at the forefront. Their main point was that laissez-faire economic policies, such as those advocated by University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman, have caused a relatively new assault on workers that has increasingly made North America categorically unequal. One of the specific disenfranchisement neoliberal economic policies identified involved corporations moving to developing countries to take advantage of weak environmental and workplace safety laws. And as much as I want to deep dive into this, I won't. One result was that a substantial portion of North America's male labor market ended up facing several challenges to its masculine identity that put it at significant risk of teaming up with others to create a subculture that promotes, expresses, and validates masculinity through violent means. Where violence against women and male-to-male -male violence develop as a type of compensatory masculinity. In my culture, we call that machismo. Others refer it as toxic masculinity. Some scholars may argue that left realism of the part was essentially a political project aimed at providing a left social democratic response to the dominant liberal conservative consensus within criminology. It has changed again and has moved toward realist criminology that attempts to avoid some of the pitfalls that have bested positive criminology on the one hand and the idealist forms criminology on the other. Realist criminology, Matthew argues, offers a more theoretical, engaged, critical, and practical way to study crime than any other approach. One that can also inform evidence-based policy found in the mainstream, quote-unquote, so what criminology. Fundamental to the realist approaches, understanding of crime, and pursuit of justice is the literature known as critical realism. A scientific perspective situated within modern philosophy that seeks a better way to find the 
truth. It gives special attention to the three broad theoretical traditions of positivism, interpretivism, and constructivism. These are the principal perspectives that still frame debates about methods of research. Critical realism was developed principally by Indo-British philosopher Roy Bahaskar. In collaboration with many British social theorists, Bahaskar's followers in Europe, Asia, the Americas, and the Antipodes. According to Matthews, recent contributions by critical realists offer the opportunity to develop left-realist analysis further and to place it upon a firmer epistemological and methodological foundation. He argues that critical realism provides a basis for developing an integrated and coherent approach, one that can more effectively link theory, method, and policy. In other words, this approach could provide a better pathway to finding truth and serving justice. One key to understanding this change is the recognition that the old left realism needed to broaden its theoretical and methodological focus if it is to be a critical alternative to existing perspectives. At the heart, critical realism is the now old argument about the shortcomings of positivism and empiricism and some of the limitations of the interpretive and social constructionist perspective. Ish is premised on very different social ontologies such as theories of social reality. Positivism, for example, does not make an ontological distinction between natural and social entities. Both are viewed as just phenomena or objects of experiences. Interpretivists draw a sharp distinction between the two domains. They argue that social reality is linguistically constructed. Constructionists, however, go further still and see the natural sciences as linguistically constituted as well. The natural sciences for them are just another realm of social life. This distinction should not be interpreted to mean that Ish has not produced valuable research. Matthews' discussion of the shortcomings of traditional positivism was not to entirety of his contributions to realist criminology. Although this portion of his work deserves praise for its breadth and depth of understanding of theoretical and methodological issues, it is equally worthy of developing seven points on how an early proposal for a fusion between realist criminology and cultural criminology could be accomplished. This, he argued, could help to develop an approach that is more theoretical and methodological consistent while being more socially and politically useful. A fusion between realist criminology and cultural criminology was first suggested by Hayward and Young 2012, who proposed that each can learn from one another because both critical theories share the same theoretical roots. It remained for Matthews to articulate seven points of agreement that could usefully be developed. First, we have an agreement that a greater understanding of the cultural dimensions of attitude and behavior is critical to forming effective policy. Second, each argues that interventions are likely to work only to the extent that they connect with the sensibilities and propensities of those to whom they are directed to. Third, both perspectives express deep reservations about using inferential statistics and the positivistic tendency to turn complex social relations into dry mathematical formulas. Fourth, both approaches commit naturalism and engage in the lived experiences of those studied because researchers and their subjects need to establish a congruity of meaning combined with a need to understand their experiences, emotions, and aspirations. And fifth, each shares a mutual distrust of overly rationalized conceptions of men as found in rational choice and routine activity theory. Off the record, routine activity theory is a theoretical framework that focuses on crime situations. In routine activity theory, crime is likely to happen when three essential elements of crime converge in space and time. A motivated offender, a suitable target, 
and the absence of capable guardianship. However, if you want to learn more about the theory, feel free to check the work of Dr. Marcus Felsen and Dr. Cohen. 6. The approaches agree that forms of regulations themselves can contribute to an offense in question, meaning that the nature of crime and deviance is not reducible to individual motivation or opportunity, but is created to some extent by modes of regulation directed toward it. And 7. A commitment to the development of critical or radical criminology, although there remain some differences in what is critical about these two approaches that problematizes the notions of crime and deviance. In other words, it seems that Matthews argues that left realisms, incorporation and integration of critical realism and left realisms agreement with cultural criminology via cultural realism produces a theoretical breadth and depth while emphasizing changing social context and how they influence criminal behavior, theory, and policy. Although each of Matthew's seven points is relatively straightforward, his sixth point merits further explanation before moving ahead with our discussion of changing social context and exploring recent developments in cultural criminology. It is valuable because Matthews brings an idea about how sanctions for crimes have been changing, arguably outside the mainstream of criminology, into the discussion about what realist criminology and cultural criminology share. The central point is that there are indicators that the state is moving beyond governing through efforts of crime control that traditionally couple an individual criminal act with punishment following due process. Summarizing others' works on this point, he argues that this form of crime control is being replaced by a mode of regulation with a range of diversion and administrative processes involving the erosion of legal safeguards and human rights prohibitions. However, if you are interested in learning more, tune in next week before jumping into some of the recent developments of cultural criminology and some context of the significant historical changes within which recent social changes and cultural criminology have happened, which will allow for a smooth transition into cultural criminology today. Thank you for listening and choosing our podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're hearing from as we delve into more criminological theories. And don't forget to tune in to our next episode. Off the record, if you need help visualizing crime theories or only have a few moments to review, feel free to visit and follow us on Instagram at ct.offTheRecord 